So come, Holy Spirit, come. Come as the wind that blows. Come as the fire that refines. Come as the dew that refreshes. Convict, convert, and consecrate us until we are wholly yours. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Reading the headlines in 2020, I'd have to conclude that the most frequent word that I saw often in headlines and in text was the word surprise. Surprised by a pandemic. Surprised by our economy. Surprised by troubles with vaccines. Surprised by doctors. Surprised by churches having to almost shudder. Surprised by the election, no matter who you voted for. Surprised by the lawsuits, the transition that hasn't taken place at the mercy of current events beyond our control, or so it seems, anxious, fearful, angry, and more. This 13th chapter of the Gospel of Mark that we're looking at today, uh, unfortunately we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but it is a pivotal chapter in this most action-packed gospel of, uh, of Mark. Mark's always immediately Jesus doing this and doing that, but here in the 13th chapter, he has the longest uninterrupted piece of teaching to Jesus' disciples that we find, and it's a bridge, a bridge between the culmination of his ministry in Jerusalem in chapters 11 and 12 and his confrontation of the religious authorities, a bridge to chapters 14 and 15 when we will see him suffer and die on the cross. It's his farewell address to his disciples. And in this sort of uh, uh, halftime locker room speech, what, what does Jesus give his disciples? He gives them a history lesson with a timeline. Now, Sometime when you get home, take a look at, at all of Mark chapter 13 because it's, it's a timeline. He starts in verses 1 through 8 talking about the destruction of Jerusalem after the disciples have said, oh, what a beautiful temple. He says, look, not one stone will be left upon a stone. He then moves on in verses 9 through 13 to talk about the fact that the gospel must be preached to all nations and the church doing it, God's chosen elect, will be persecuted for that. In verses 14 through 23, he carries the timeline on and says there's going to be this, this abomination of desolation in the temple, a, a tribulation of unprecedented dimension, followed by what we read today, the sun and the moon and the stars falling and blackening out and the Son of Man coming in glory, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and the end of all things wrapped up. And in this, this halftime locker room speech that Jesus gives to his disciples, he says this most important thing. He says, don't be alarmed. All these things I've described to you must happen. Don't be surprised. Be ready because there's a long game ahead of us. And so let me just share three observations about history uh, and three takeaways. Uh, three observations about history and why we shouldn't be surprised. Number one, 
History belongs to God. Jesus is Lord of history. He's not startled, upset, worried, or depressed by current events. Jesus says, be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. In verse 23, he's told us everything. That means he hasn't missed anything. Therefore, there's no surprises, no contingencies, no upsets to God. It's all in his hands. And as you read this chapter, you find that, that God's plan and purposes include all of creation, every stone of the temple, its future, Jerusalem, Israel, the Gentiles, earthquakes and wars, natural disasters, the universal church, his elect and chosen ones, the whole world, the sun, the moon and the stars, and even the heavenly powers, all of it. It's all under his control. He's in control of all events, and they all serve God's plan for the salvation of the world through the preaching of the gospel to all nations. And that's the second observation of history, and that is that history has a God-given purpose and plan. There's a Greek word that uh, Christians often use for understanding history, and that is Biblical understanding of history is teleological, from the word telos, which means there is a purpose, a plan, and an end. History is linear. It has a beginning, a middle, and an end. We're living in that middle time right now, you and I. And history is not this meaningless cycle of violence and oppression, nor is it something that we can revise and reshape in our own image History has a purpose and a plan, and that is the preaching of the gospel to all nations. It is not a secular, utopian, wishful thinking that the human race is going to get better if we just give it time. The purpose of history is the preaching of the gospel to all nations. We're living during this time of God's patience and appeal to all people when it is His gracious will that all nations shall have an opportunity to hear and accept the gospel before the end is wrapped up. There is a great biblical scholar, C.E.B. Cranfield, who said this of, of what Jesus was saying. He said that in Mark, Mark 13, Jesus does not mean that the world will become steadily more Christian or that the end will not come until everybody surrenders their lives to Jesus. No. Jesus is promising that the gospel will be preached, not that it will necessarily be believed. And what that means is that we must be laser-focused, you and I, on sharing Jesus Christ with people who do not yet know him. We must have the same passionate love and brokenness of heart that Jesus had for lost people. And what about the temptation to figure out, you know, well, where are we in the timeline and how long... Do we need to wait before Jesus comes in the clouds with glory? Well, Jesus' answer is the same answer that he gave to his disciples. Our focus is not when the end will come, but rather our focus is on the proclamation of the gospel to all nations so that the end will come. No one knows the time or the hour, not even Jesus. Only Father God knows in his sovereign decision on wrapping things up is cloaked in inscrutable mystery and won't happen until the gospel is preached to all the nations. So instead of worrying about the signs of the end, we must be focused 
on sharing Jesus with others. Amen? Third observation, history is God's stage for perfecting his purposes and plans. What we might consider the end is often God's new beginning. What we may consider as the death throes of a culture or a way of life may be the birth pangs of a whole new creation. That's exactly what Jesus says in chapter 13 of Mark at verse 8. These are just the birth pangs. What Jesus predicted in 33 AD about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, Mark wrote about to worried Christians in Rome hearing of things going on in Palestine in 60 AD, and it actually happened 10 years later in 70 AD. And if you read the historian Josephus talking about how the, the general, later Caesar, Titus, swept into Jerusalem, and slaughtered over a million Jews, leaving the streets just running red. No stone turned upon the other. Everything burned to the ground. You, if you had been living at that time, you would have thought this is the end. But it did, it wasn't the end. In fact, the tragedy of Jerusalem became the turning point for the expansion of the gospel as Jewish followers of Jesus fled Jerusalem and went into all the world with the gospel as they already had begun to do when they were persecuted following Pentecost. And in all these events where Father God is perfecting his plans, whether it's the destruction of Jerusalem, the persecution of the church, or the terrible tribulation, Jesus never loses his calm. Instead, he says, this is how you should live when you're facing times of distress and upheaval, maybe like you've never even seen before, and when I'm no longer with you in person. So what is Jesus' advice to us on how we should live in light of this timeline? How then shall we live when we're facing times of distress and upheaval like we've never experienced before and the Master is no longer with us in person? So let me just conclude with three takeaways. Number one, Jesus says, be on your guard. You, he says, be watchful. A word he uses multiple times, which means not only seeing and watching, but at a deeper level, looking at events with a discerning eye so that we may actively understand what is happening around us and respond as Jesus would if he were in our shoes. And he describes what that looks like to his disciples in this 13th chapter. He says, this is what it looks like to, to be on your guard. It means resisting false prophets and other deceivers who would lead God's people astray from their first love and loyalty. It means staying alive so you can continue the work of spreading the gospel. And it even means trusting in God over your family if need be. When sword divides father from mother and brother and sister and son. It means we are watchful with eyes of faith that see the events of life through the lens of the Bible so that we, we don't take our directions from the context in which we find ourselves and the headlines in newspapers and social media. We don't take our directions from the tragedies that we see and feel around us but rather we take our directions from the Lord of life. So in every case, we first put on biblical lenses to look at what's going on 
and say, we've been here before, where in the story are we? That's exactly what some, some Christian leaders did, pastors and lawyers and theologians, some years ago, when they looked with biblical lenses of what's going on in North America, and, and you know what they said? We're no longer in Jerusalem. We're in Babylon. If we think we're in Jerusalem, we'll make an improper diagnosis and come to the wrong conclusions. We're in Babylon. So we need to think like Daniel did, who at the king's table refused to eat and decided to do things God's way. And they said, you know what? Let's pull together a fellowship for Christian law students, brilliant Christian law students, academically gifted, righteous men and women with tremendous integrity and strength of faith. And what we will do is we will bring the best and brightest legal scholars, philosophers, apologists, and immerse them in two weeks of teaching and then send them out to be clerks to federal justices so that someday these Christian law students themselves will become federal court judges and maybe even someday a Supreme Court justice. And so we have the Blackstone Fellowship because Christians took off their conventional lenses and put on biblical lenses and said, here's where we are in the story. We've been here before. We know what to do. So be confident. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words endure forever. Jesus predicted the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. It happened, as he said, it happened to the uh, generation of the disciples. But in Luke 8, 15, Jesus also promises fruitfulness to those who hear his word with a noble and true heart and put it into practice. Jesus promises in Matthew 7, endurance against the storms for those who hear his word and put it into practice. In this chapter 13, he promises through the Holy Spirit that he's going to be with us right when we're in the middle of difficult times. And better yet, in verse 13, he promises you and me that even when all men hate us because we love and follow Jesus, whomever stands firm to the end will be saved. So be confident. You may not feel you can trust CNN or Fox or the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or Facebook, Twitter, or TikTok or any other social media. The din of voices is overwhelming. And those voices are troubling and even intimidating. But Jesus says, don't be alarmed by what you hear. You have my word, and it's not going anywhere. Thirdly, he says, not only be on your guard and, and be confident, he says, be wide awake to Christ and his kingdom at all times and in all places. And that word, stay awake, isn't a word of Jesus saying, I, I want you to be a perpetual insomniac. Um, he's saying, at a deeper level, I want all your faculties gathered together, alert and cooperative with me and at my service. His command to be wide awake is a warning that there's no more time for leisurely and casual faith. Two Sundays ago, Julie and I were on St. Simon's Island at the biggest church. And it's a beautiful church and the largest church and all the bells and whistles you could ever want. And the pastor 
got up and said, I am publicly repenting, and I want you to publicly repent of anything that has contributed to a culture of casual Christianity. Jesus is saying here, stop putting your spiritual life at the bottom of your list. Stop trying to just fit Jesus in only when he's convenient for you. Stop treating the Christian life like it's a bunch of boxes you need to check. If there's anything that, that Jesus drives home in this history lesson, it's this one point, and that is things are going to get worse before they get better, and he comes again. What are we going to do? We live in a culture that has an unjustified evolutionary optimism in the goodness of human nature that if you just educate people in the right way, they'll somehow become better. And yet we've got a hundred years of clear-eyed history behind us that shows that by virtue of our technology, we've only become as a species more lethal in killing each other, in persecuting each other, in exploiting each other, and in human trafficking. We are not getting better. C.S. Lewis wrote this. What this means is that at the most basic level, the bad parts of our culture never evolved to become less bad. Evil can be undone, he wrote, but it cannot develop into good. Time does not heal it. And that's true for the evil in our society and for the evil in our own hearts. Leaving it alone does not work, which means we cannot be passive. We cannot be passive to the wrongs of our world or to the wrongs in ourselves. And if we're not passive, what are we? We're wide awake. Because we know that the bad gets worse. And when Jesus tells us to stay awake, he means be wide awake and vigilant to what God is doing all around us. Don't lose your biblical lens as you look around you. Don't loosen your grip on God's purpose for you. Don't allow your worries to choke the seed of God's love for the lost all around you. Don't allow the events swirling around you to distract you from the biblical vision of God's kingdom, the range of God's effective will where what God wants done is done in your life, in your children, in your children's children, in your workplace, in your schools, in this community. What would it look like to be so awake to what God wants done all around us? To seek first his kingdom and his righteousness in every relationship, responsibility, and realm that our lives touch. Well, Jesus said in the passage we read today, it looks like this. It, it looks like faithful servants whose master has gone away for a time and they are laboring away each at his or her own work, each at his assignment, waiting patiently at the door, not sleeping for the first sign of the final return of the master. And in the meantime, as Jesus writes elsewhere in Matthew 25, being so wide awake that we recognize Jesus every day in the poor and the hungry and the naked, and the homeless, and the imprisoned all around us. The Apostle Paul says it looks like this. Jesus' followers who are always wide awake, careful how they walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil, and therefore using the time that remains before Jesus comes back in leading people to Jesus 
and extending God's kingdom as far and as wide as we possibly can. And for those of us who are closer to heaven maybe than others, taking as many people with us as we can before we go. I think it looks like two dear brothers in Christ who've been encouraging me for 30 years. Their names are John and Vern. Vern is mid to late 90s now, and John, I'm not sure how old he is, but you know what they do every day? They're dear friends, and they've been doing this for a while. They told me, they, they call each other up, and they say, so, so what did God tell you your kingdom assignment is today? What note do you need to write? What person do you need to call? What, what person that doesn't yet know Jesus do you need to, to talk to? What deal do you need to put, pull together, even surreptitiously, you know, that will advance the kingdom? What Bible study do you need to lead or preach or teach? What do you need to write to you? What's your kingdom assignment, John? What's your kingdom assignment, Vern? And then they pray for each other. And then they go out and do that as if this was the last day before Jesus comes. So, dear ones, don't be surprised or dismayed. Don't let current events take you hostage. Let God, who is the Lord of your history and mine and all history, let Jesus himself, with his gracious love and his imperishable word, take you hostage, shaping the way you look at things, shaping your heart, shaping the decisions you make to respond to what God is doing all around you. Be confident that his word will lead you, guard you, and show you your kingdom assignment today, tomorrow, and in every day to come. Amen?